Well, good evening, everybody. I think good I, evening, good evening. I think I told half the people I talked to good morning earlier. <laughs> but we are, uh, we're wrapping up a series today on uh, being citizens of hope. Uh, we've talked so far about how we are fed by hope. I think we started off talking about communion and making that connection that part of what we, uh, where we get our hope from is remembering who Jesus Christ is and what he has done for us. So that's one of the ways that we get fed by hope. We've talked about uh, being able to have hope in a world that just seems to not have any hope anywhere sometimes. And the reason that we can have hope in that messed up, broken, and confused world is because our hope is hope because we are children of God. And even when the world is broken and the world is falling apart around us, our identity as children of God doesn't get taken away from us. And then last week, we talked about having a new vision for hope, uh, a vision where we're not looking through, uh, we're not looking at the world just from our own perspective, but we're looking at the world around us through the lens of Christ and how that gives us just a different perspective. We know that even when bad things are happening, God is still at work. God can still be at work when bad things are happening, doing good things. And we know that sometimes even those hard things are for our own growth. And so we can have hope because God doesn't ever leave us. Tonight, we're going to talk about second line living. And I know most of you are wondering, what is that? We are going to get to that. Uh, Before we get to that, though, I'm not going to give it away right away. Um, Let's pray first, and then we'll we'll look at some scripture before we get to what is second line living. So will will you pray with me? God, we're thankful to be here. We're thankful to worship with our friends, with our church family. We thank, we're thankful that you are here with us and we have hope because you are here with us, because you are filling us up with your hope right now. We pray, God, that you would fill us up with your hope, not just our minds, but our hearts, and work it into our lives. Come, God, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. You, Jesus, are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So we're going to look at a story uh, from the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 11, and it's the story where Jesus brings Lazarus back from the dead. I kind of gave the ending of the story away because we're not going to look at the end of the story. We're going to look at the beginning of the story, uh, or actually kind of in the middle. To start with, Jesus is a two days journey away from Bethany, And Bethany is actually the city where Lazarus and his two sisters, Mary and Martha, live. And so uh, Jesus receives word that Lazarus is sick, that if he doesn't come and heal Lazarus, uh, Lazarus is probably going to die. And Jesus basically says, and this is the Thomas version, he says, no worries. It's going to glorify God in the end, but we don't need to worry about it. And then he doesn't go right away. Two days later, he says, well, I guess we ought to go to Bethany now because I think Lazarus is dead and we need to bring him back to life. And his disciples are grappling with how to understand this. Uh, They have some interesting conversation. When Jesus gets to Bethany, Lazarus has been dead for four days now. And this is the conversation he has with Lazarus' sister, Martha. Uh, He comes up to Martha and Jesus says, your brother will rise again. Now, has anyone ever been at a funeral or you've been around someone or maybe you yourself have lost someone close to you? 
Um, what, what's something that we typically will say? A word of comfort that sounds a lot like this. It's, uh, don't worry, you'll see them again one day. Now, if someone says that to you, you're probably not expecting that's going to be in the next few moments, Right? And so, so it happens that the, the Jewish people during this time, they had this widespread belief in the resurrection. And it was, uh, it was different than how we think of heaven, although I think maybe we're, we might be more misunderstood than, than they are. But uh, they had this understanding that, that the resurrection was going to happen on the day of judgment, which was basically the last day. And at the resurrection, all of the people that live godly lives will, will be able to, to be raised into their bodies again and will come back to life. And that's going to be a good day. God's going to let them live forever. And so when Jesus says, your brother will rise again, Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Right? So that's like if I said, don't worry, well, you'll see them again one day. And someone says, yeah, I know, I know, I, I know. That's not what Jesus is talking about though, right? He's not talking about one day far off. He's talking about something a little more immediate. We know that because we've, we've read the story and I gave it away at the, end, at the beginning, right? Lazarus gets raised from the dead after being dead for four days. And so here's how Jesus clarifies before he raises Lazarus from the dead. Jesus says to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Guys, I don't know what I would think if someone said that to me. But based on the, the whole story, and based on who we know Jesus to be, I think this is what Jesus is saying. I think Jesus is saying the resurrection is not something that's just going to happen far off one day in the future. I think the resurrection is something, at least that Martha is about to experience right there. Lazarus is going to be brought from the dead. I think the bigger implication of what he's saying, though, is that we don't have to wait until one day when everything's made right again, but God is doing a work of resurrection right now. We don't have to wait till one day when all the bad stuff goes away and God makes everything right. We often talk about it in terms of one day I'll, I'll get to go to heaven. I know everything's going to be good. And um, we don't have to wait till that day, but God is making things new right here. And this is not the first time Jesus says that. Just earlier in uh, that, that same book, Jesus says this, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus is talking about how part of the hope we have is that that new life, that abundant life, it's not just something that we get after we die. It's something that starts right here in this life. In another part of the, uh, the same gospel, the gospel of John, this is in the high priestly prayer. It's one of my favorite chapters in scripture um, and we'll read a little bit more of it later. But in this part, when he's praying in the garden right before he dies, he, he's praying to God and he's doing one of those prayers where you just, uh, you're, you're talking through something you know to be true, but it's just kind of a part of your prayer. He says, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you sent. He's saying eternal life doesn't just start one day after we die. 
Eternal life is the life that starts right now. It's kind of uncanny how similar this is to Paul's prayer because we didn't talk about this ahead of time. God must be at work. There's another part where Paul, the apostle, writes to the Corinthians. Uh, He writes, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Behold, or no, the old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. He's saying the new creation isn't something that just happens one day far off in the distant future after we die. It's something that starts right now. And as we're talking about this in the context of what does it mean to be a citizen of hope, being a citizen of hope means we get to start having that hope right now. That hope breaks into this world and starts to make things new, even before uh, God makes everything new, right? There's this, uh, there's this old tradition of a, of a jazz funeral, uh, and, and it's a tradition from Louisiana my understanding, I've never been to a jazz funeral, but my understanding is that a jazz funeral has a, a first line, and the first line would be the family members of the deceased, the mourners. It would be a very somber, mournful, uh, probably, probably there's people crying as they walk uh, to the graveside and they bury the body. They are mourning and grieving. They, are, they have lost something. There, there is maybe a sense of hopelessness, right? That's the first line. As soon as the deceased is buried, the second line comes out. And the second line is led by a jazz band with friends who are singing and they probably sang, oh, when the saints go marching in, oh, when the saints go marching in. And then it turns into a big party, a big celebration. And, and the reason they did that is because God's hope is not just something we get one day, right? But it's the hope of the resurrection that starts to break in right now. Even in the middle of people's mourning, the hope comes in and reminds us God is doing something new. And it's that second line that I think might give us some guidance on how we're supposed to live in the world. Right? So the second line, it was the friends of people who had just lost someone close to them who would come in even in the middle of their grief with celebration, with reminders of the hope of the resurrection that we have. That God's not just going to make things good one day, that God's starting to do some good stuff right now. So have hope. I wonder what would it look like for us to live out that second line in the world today? That's what second line living is. I know that's the reason you all came tonight. You read the email blast and you saw the title and you thought, what in the world is that? Second line, second line living is when we live out the hope of Christ out in the world. We bring hope to places that are desperate for it. And so that, oh, actually, I, I forgot to show this. I have a picture of a, of a funeral in Louisiana and you can see that it's a graveside, they're going to the graveside, but there's people on the sides that are dressed up in costume. That's the second line. They're just getting ready. They're, they're, they're ready to jump out and start the celebration to remind people of hope. And so for us, uh, you know, we need to ask if we're going to be citizens of hope, how do we bring hope to a world that is hopeless? How do we live in such a way that we can bring this hope to people that need it? And so what I want to offer tonight uh, is, is three things that I think are essential if we're going to do that. 
uh, they're probably not the only three things. You could probably come up with other things that are important. And that's good. I hope you're thinking about that. Um, and it's, it's not meant to be an order, although I think it works as an order. Uh, I want to offer up three things that are essential if we're going to be people that can live out that second line in the world today. The first one is we have to stay connected to the source of hope. If we're not going to stay connected to the source of hope, I don't think we're going to have very much to offer the world. Now, I think we have to mention this because since the Enlightenment, there's been a lot of human thought around the idea that if we just try really hard, if we uh, use innovation and technology, uh, and we pool our resources, and we can cooperate enough, we, on our own effort as humans, can make the world a better place. Now, I think as Christians, we agree with everyone in the world that the world is in need of uh, being made into a better place. And we could agree that we want to do everything in our power to do that. But I think as followers of Jesus, the thing that we realize is that um, we aren't going to be able to offer hope to the world unless it's a hope that's bigger than what I alone have to offer. I, I think God has given us all gifts where we can offer something. And I think by his grace, he still lets us contribute that to the world. I just don't think we can offer a whole lot to a, help, to a, a hopeless world unless there's a deeper source of our hope than just ourselves, if that makes sense. I'm not saying don't try. I'm saying we got to dig deep, right? And so uh, there's this great verse uh, in Romans 15 at the end of the letter to the Romans that, that Paul writes. He writes this. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. I love that he reminds them of such important things as he's wrapping up this letter. Uh, he shared a lot of theological concepts in the book of Romans, but the end of the letter is so practical. He reminds them first that God is a God of hope and God is our source of hope. If we don't have God, uh, we're not gonna have a hope that's bigger than ourselves. And then he asked that God would fill them with joy and peace and believing. I don't know if any of you, it reminds me of the fruit of the Spirit, right? Joy and peace are the, the numbers two and three, I think, for the fruits of the Spirit. And he does that because then he says, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. So what we see here is the, that the Holy Spirit is actually the one that gives us hope. The Holy Spirit is the one that builds hope up in our lives, that lets us be a people that abound in hope, that have so much hope in us that we can actually share some with others too, right? And so maybe the question to ask ourselves to start with is, how do we connect with the Holy Spirit? How do we open up our lives so that we don't just know about hope up here, but the Holy Spirit starts to come and build up a deeper hope? How do we stay connected to the Holy Spirit? The early Methodists and John Wesley, they came up with these things that they called means of grace. And the means of grace, it wasn't a magic formula for being a, uh, an all-star Christian or something like that. It wasn't a checklist to make sure that you were good enough to go to heaven one day. It was practices that kept you connected to God. And basically, the way I like to explain means of grace is, again, it's, it's not that I do something and then I grow. The means of grace are practices like prayer and scripture reading and fasting. There are things I can do to open up my heart to say, all right, God, here I am. Come and do what you want to do. And when I, when I ask God to do that, he's always faithful to come and do something. 
Sometimes it's a little uncomfortable. Sometimes I'd rather him uh, not point that out in my heart or uh, not challenge me to live in a particular way that's like the way of Jesus. But whenever we practice these spiritual practices, God is faithful to come and stay connected to our lives. And so, so I think really those are gonna look different for every person and that's okay. What we have to do to start with, staying connected to the source of hope, is we have to ask, what practices do I have that allow me to be open to God working in my life in a regular way? I'm not gonna answer the question for you because I can't answer the question for you. Only you can answer that question. So staying connected to the source of hope is the starting point. The next thing that we have to do is we have to go into the world. This might sound like uh, something that's a little too simple. Like, Thomas, did we really need to say that? I actually, I think we do. Uh, I'm gonna read something. This is also from the high priestly prayer. That prayer that Jesus prayed as he is getting ready to face the cross. He prays in a lot of that prayer, he prays for his disciples. And this is what he prays for them. He says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Jesus is praying that those 12 that followed him during his three years of ministry, that they would be able to go into the world to continue his ministry. And in case you're sitting there thinking, well, good thing he just prayed that for those 12. It's funny, two verses later, he adds this. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Guys, that definitely includes us, right? We can agree that Jesus was praying for us there. The content of his prayer, I think, is is important to pay attention to. He says that it's not okay for us to be followers of Jesus who who only uh, spend time away from the world. It's not okay for us to huddle up only with other Christians and say, well, we don't want to get too close to the world because it might rub off on us. uh, So we're just going to stay here in our worship building. He says it's not okay just to do that, but we have to go out into the world. And he acknowledges that we're probably going to look a little bit different, and that's okay too. We're not, he doesn't tell us to just start acting like the world, but he, he wants us to engage with the world. The part of this that I love the most is, is he says in that last line, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Now we might not think about this too much, but Jesus, before he uh, became a human, he, he lived in heaven. Before Jesus became a human, he lived in heaven, and I imagine things were pretty good for him. They were probably pretty comfortable. He probably had a throne, uh, a number of angels and servants to bring him what he felt like he needed. Or I, I bet things were so good, I can't even describe how good they were. And let me tell you what Jesus did not do. Jesus did not sit in heaven and say, well, you broken humans, so sorry for you. When you get your act together, I'd love for you to come up here. But until then, you know... I hope you figure it out. You know, he didn't do that, did he? He didn't uh, just send them a letter and say, there's some words of hope in this letter um, and I hope that's good for you, but I'm gonna stay here. No, he didn't do that. He he didn't say, uh, I'm gonna invite you to come and worship in the throne room with me one hour a week, but after that, we're not really gonna talk much. Nope, he didn't even do that. 
Jesus left the throne room. He left heaven to come down into our broken and messy world because he loves us. And in that same way that Jesus left his place of comfort to, come, to go into a world where there's people and build relationships with them, uh, we're called to go into a world to leave our place of comfort, which could be here. That could be our place of comfort. We need to be challenged to leave and to go into the world to get to know people. I love the way the message puts it. Um, it says the word, which is, which is Jesus, became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. He moved into the neighborhood. Jesus is sending us into the neighborhood to go get to know people. And I think the reason that that's the method that Jesus wants to share hope with people is because hope is not shared just uh, in words. Um, it's shared relationally. Hope is shared through relationship. I don't know about you, but you could probably think of, there's probably people in your life that when you spend time with them, you just get filled up with hope. You're like, man, I love hanging around Sarah because whenever, whenever I talk to her, no matter what's going on that's bad in my life, I just think, man, I feel, I'm filled with so much hope now because I got to spend time with my friend Sarah or whoever it is. Uh, Jesus calls us to go into the world and get to know people because if we're connected to the source of hope and we go into the world, then I think what starts to happen is we begin to live out that hope in, a wor in the world. Now, there's two really big obstacles to this going into the world thing. And I, wanna, I, I think it's important to name them because uh, that helps us start to learn how to overcome them. The first obstacle to going out into the world, it has to do with our, our current times. And, and it seems in our current times that uh, if we're going to be around people that disagree with us, we're going to have a hard time with that. At least that's what I see in the world happening today with the political uh, mess that we have in our country. And uh, it just seems like strong viewpoints want to alienate the other side and then we can't even be friends. I mean, I just see that all over the place and people in church are not exempt from that, right? So the hard part of going out into the world is Jesus is probably gonna call you to love people that disagree with you. So you're gonna have to get over that. I mean, I'll say get over that. What I really think we need is we need Jesus to come in and work on our hearts and help us transform us so that we can be people that even love anyone we might consider an enemy. And maybe part of the hope we have to offer the world is to show a better way of living where we don't demonize the other side just because they think something different than us. But I'm just saying, if we're going to go out into the world, that's going to be a challenge because you're going to be called to build relationships with people that vote differently than you, that believe differently than you, uh, that live life very differently than you. We don't get to choose who we love. We don't get to choose uh, who Jesus came for. Jesus came for everyone. And so that's the first obstacle that we have to get over. We have to figure out how can we not fall into the same pattern that the world has, where we are divisive and we just blame the other side. The next thing that, that I think is a, an obstacle is it has to do with us just being church people. Uh, the obstacle is that when you spend enough time in the church, it wants you to spend more time in the church and then more time in the church. And before you know it, you turn around and you, and, you, and you could look at your life and say, man, I think all the people I'm really friends with are also in the church with me. 
And, and I don't think that's an overstatement. I was talking to someone just the other day who we were talking about the need to go out and do ministry beyond the walls at Bethany. And they, they looked at me and they said, Thomas, don't get me wrong, I want to do that. But the only friends I have are friends that go to church. Man, I don't think you should feel guilty if that's the place you're at. But I do think it says uh, there's a very clear next step. Go make friends that are not in church. Now, uh, for me, this is kind of hard because I work at a church. And so for at least 40 hours of my week are spent here. Uh, we don't just work on Sundays and Saturday nights, believe it or not. Uh, but also, like, I'm just, over the years, I've gotten to know a lot of people through church. So as Tracy and I, my, Tracy and my wife, as, uh, as we have prayed about this and sought God's guidance on this, God, where do you want us to go into the world? We feel too busy. We feel like almost everything we do is at church. Uh, what God's shown us is that in our own neighborhood, there's a lot of people that don't go to church. Uh, and for us, you know, we have a five-year-old and a one-year-old. So uh, we're also very busy with kids, but there's also a lot of people in our neighborhood that are, are gonna be going to the same elementary school as Abigail. And so what we found is that uh, building relationships with people in our similar stage of life is the most natural thing we can do. And instead of uh, not making time for that because we have too many church activities, uh, we're trying to be more intentional about that. I'm really excited. We're having a block party on, on Memorial Day between us and our neighbor's house. We have like some shared front yard space. So we're just gonna cook some hot dogs and hamburgers and put some kiddie pools out. And we've been handing out flyers in our neighborhood like, hey, we're having a block party. Uh, we just wanna make friends and, and, and be a welcoming community here. Um, and it's cool because our neighbors wanna do that with us. Um, and I don't know where that's going to go. Um, I don't, honestly, like, I, it's not my job to worry about where that's going to go. God calls me to go and build relationships out in the world. And that's, that's what we're trying to do. I don't know where it is for you. Um, maybe you have a workplace and you work with people. Uh, maybe, you know, I have a friend who works at a restaurant and his coworkers go out to a happy hour a couple times a week. And so he goes with them. And they have a good time and he's able to get to know people that he wouldn't normally get to know and, and just, not just know them as coworkers, but to really care about them, to really invest in their lives. And I, I probably need to emphasize, uh, you're not, th this going out into the world is not going to um, find people and have an agenda about that relationship. It's, it's really to go and find people and to love them just for the purpose of loving them. That, that's a really important thing. I'm not talking about uh, having some kind of alternative motive to forming friendships. I'm talking about genuine, authentic friendships, because I think that's what Jesus did. And so, going out into the world. So if, if you have been connected to the source of hope, and you have gone out into the world, then I think that next step, the third thing that we cannot forget, is we have to share hope as people are ready to receive it. And that as people are ready to receive it is a really important part. This probably begins with blessing people by trying to figure out what are their needs. Um, is, is someone, uh, I don't know, maybe they're sick and so making some soup and bringing it over their house is a good idea, right? That would be a very, uh, like, that, it's not a very risky thing to do, right? Um, maybe they might just need a friend they can talk to more, a little bit riskier. You have, to, you have to be a little bit more vulnerable when you start a friendship. And so maybe just engaging them in that level, being able to spend more time talking, sharing about our lives, maybe that happens. But at some point, you come to a place where hope can be shared through action, and it should, but hope can be shared through words also. 
And Christ can be shared through words also, and, it, and he should be. And so there's this great verse in 1 Peter. The book of 1 Peter is written to a church that was being persecuted. And part of what would happen in the early church, if you are uh, afraid that you might be put to death for, your, for being a Christian, when someone asks you why you live differently, uh, you might not say, well, it's because I follow Jesus. Uh, that might be a temptation the early church faced. And so uh, Peter writes some stuff in his letter to try to encourage them not to be ashamed, but to gently and truthfully speak about that, tr- that hope. I-, I think that there might be something in there for us. Now, no one here is afraid of losing their life because of their faith, but I think more and more in our culture, it's becoming the kind of thing where you might be embarrassed for your faith. And it probably depends on who you hang out with and, and what you're, who you're talking to, but um, there is a little bit of a risk, and I do think we back down from sharing about God in our lives sometimes. And, and so I think these words are good for us to hear. Give us something to think about. He, Peter writes this, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Now something important about this, Peter is not saying it's okay to be defensive. If you got that, you need to reread it. That's not what he's saying. What he is saying, though, first he starts off with this expectation that, uh, that you're going to be living your life full of hope and out in the world, right? He says, uh, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you. Peter's assuming that if people spend time with you long enough, they're going to see there's something different about your life and they want to know what that is. So that's maybe the first thing we can get from that is Peter also thinks we should be connected to the source of hope and we should go out into the world. But then here's how Peter says to respond. He doesn't say give them a three or four point gospel explanation and try to convert them. He doesn't say try to share the story of the whole Bible in one breath. Uh, He doesn't say to try to argue about theology. Peter says share how the hope of God has been at work in your life. Share about your story. You know, I think the beautiful thing about this is if God's a really, is, really is a part of our life and people get to know us on a deep enough level, us sharing about God as a part of our life, it's going to come out naturally. It's not going to be a forced conversation when we're trying to corner people and they can't get away. So yeah, here's Jesus. It's not going to be like that. It shouldn't be like that. But I think it comes naturally as we live a particular way. We are intentional about loving people and building relationships. And I think as we get to know people and they get to know us, they're going to want to know what, what is it in your life that makes you live this way? And then we can say, it's, it's because I have a hope in Christ. And that might sound weird, but here's how it's changed my life. And I love that he adds on there, do this with gentleness and respect. He's emphasizing it's not about putting Jesus in people's face. It's about uh, lovingly and carefully sharing about the hope that we have. And so maybe, you know, this could look like a coworker who has lost a loved one. And as you are a close friend of this coworker, you would be talking with them and understanding how they're struggling. And they might get to a point where they say, man, I just don't know how I'm going to go on. Like, I'm so mad. It feels like God has abandoned me. And you could say, you know what? I've felt that too. And when I've lost a loved one, that was hard for me. What really helped me is remembering that no matter how hard things get, God never leaves me. And that's been a big comfort for me. That's what's gotten me through 
a similar experience. It could look like a neighbor who gets laid off and because you're close with them and you have a relationship, uh, you are talking, you're asking, how you doing? Like, how you really doing? It's been a while in the job hunt. And they might confess to you that, man, I am questioning my worthiness. I just feel like, like I'm not worth anything because I can't get a job. And, and, and you can share that, you know what? I've had some of those same thoughts, but what's really helped me is to remember my identity is not in my accomplishments. My identity is just in Jesus. And that helps me from getting big-headed and it helps me from getting too down on myself when I'm in the pits. It's, it's, it's sharing like that. It's when someone you know, a close friend from a long time ago comes to you and says, my marriage is on the rocks. What am I going to do? And You can say, look, I don't have a quick and easy solution. But I do know that I serve a God that even in the midst of things going wrong, he's making a lot of things new. Could I just pray for you right now? I don't, I don't know if it's going to fix it. It's probably not going to be quick and easy, but may, let me just pray for you. That's, that's the biggest hope that I have. Could I share that with you? Again, we're not trying to convert people. God's the one that changes hearts and minds, but we are called to, give, to bear witness to the hope that we have. I think ultimately this is how we live out that second line. We bless people. We love them. But we also want to show people where that source of hope is so that maybe they can connect to Jesus, that source of hope for themselves. So, you know, we're asking ourselves that question. How can we live out that second line in our lives? How can we live in a way where we bring hope to a world that's in need? Maybe for you, it's just staying connected to that source of hope. Maybe you know it up here. Maybe, you, maybe for you, you're feeling like you need that hope to come and live in your heart more. Maybe for you, uh, you, you just have a lot of church friends, but uh, it's, it's hard to get away from those church friends to go spend time in the world around you. So maybe for you, the next step is just uh, schedule some time to go and make friends wherever you naturally live out your life, your, your neighborhood, your workplace, amongst uh, some old friends from, from way back when. And you love them like Jesus did. Maybe for you, it's uh, working on how do I articulate how God's been a part of my life? Because he has, I know he has. I just, I don't know how I would say that if someone asked me. Maybe, maybe you ask a friend on the way home, can, can I just try talking this out with you so it doesn't sound weird with a new person? And that's okay. You know, there's something really interesting about the early church. The early church in the book of Acts started in Jerusalem. And they were filled with hope because they had just seen the resurrection. But the, the church in Jerusalem didn't grow very much. But around Acts chapter 6 and 7, this guy named Stephen, he was a deacon in the early church, he gets martyred for his faith. And then all the early Christians have to flee for their lives. They flee from Jerusalem. They spread out across the Roman Empire and they go and live in all these other places. Literally, they move into the neighborhood in all these other places. And it's when they move into these other neighborhoods across the Roman Empire that the hope of Christ, the hope of the resurrection, that hope of new life begins to spread to more people in more places. At some point, it takes off like a wildfire. So my question for us tonight is, maybe for us, that's the image. That's of how that second line living looks. Maybe we're gathered here in Jerusalem for worship an hour each week, but maybe it's when we're sent out from this place that we take God's hope with us. We take it to our neighborhoods, to our jobs, to our friends, to our loved ones, 
and we live out that hope in an authentic way like Jesus calls us to do. Maybe Jesus is sending us out uh, not to other parts of the world, but to Austin, Texas to live out this hope so that a hopeless world can see the hope that we have and they maybe can have that hope for themselves. So will you pray with me? Jesus, we need your hope in our lives. We never stop needing your hope. We need also for you to help us as we be a people that bring your hope to the world. We know that you want your light to come in the midst of darkness. We know that eternal life does not start one day after we die, but it begins right now as we look to you and experience your new life in us. And then we bring that to a world that is looking for more. Come Holy Spirit, fill us up and send us out so we can be a people that bring your hope to a world in need. We pray that you would do this in Jesus' name. Amen.